Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers. The Full Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the 7th episode of season 11. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Two facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know the number of possible arrangements of a standard 52 card deck is 8.07 times 10 to the 67th power. That's roughly 8 followed by 67 zeros. There's more possible ways to arrange a simple deck of cards than there are atoms on Earth. It's likely that if you shuffled a deck of cards right now, the order your deck is in has never occurred before in human history. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Final quote of the day. In truth, the only restrictions on our capacity to astonish ourselves and each other are imposed by our own minds. That was said by illusionist David Blaine. Listener Mark Lewis requested this case via the contact form at britishmurders.com. We're in the Merseyside town of Birkenhead this week, located on the Wirral in northwest England. For reference, the town is just a couple of miles southwest of Liverpool, lying across the River Mersey from it, and for my international listeners, 195 or so miles northwest of London. Please let me know if you're an international listener and find the distance from London part helpful. I did recently cover a case in Birkenhead for a Patreon bonus episode, so forgive me dear patrons, I'm going to be reusing the facts from that episode. Here are those five quickfire facts about Birkenhead. Number one, the name Birkenhead probably means headland overgrown with birch, from the old English birchen, meaning birch tree. Number two, Birkenhead Park was the world's first public park, designed by Joseph Paxton, and is said to have influenced the design of New York City's Central Park. Number three, the oldest standing building on Merseyside, Birkenhead Priory and St Mary's Tower, was founded in 1150. Number four, Hamilton Square in Birkenhead has the most Grade 1 listed buildings outside of London, after, you guessed it, Trafalgar Square. And number five, in August 2022, the British Member of Parliament for Birkenhead, Mick Whitley, supported the findings of local historian John Lamb that Robert Louis Stevenson had set his classic novel Treasure Island in the towns of Birkenhead and Wallasey. The approximate population of Birkenhead, according to the 2011 census, is 88,818. I'm starting this episode with an extreme content warning. The main theme running throughout is child abuse, which made it exceptionally difficult to research. Please continue listening at your own discretion. 
I always feel it's worth providing some context in episodes such as this, so I've gathered some statistics from the Office for National Statistics and the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, the NSPCC, which I'll go over now. Legally speaking, there isn't a specific offence relating to child abuse, i.e. you won't hear of someone being charged with that. Instead, charges such as cruelty to persons under 16 and child destruction exist. The UK government describes child abuse as the following. A form of maltreatment of a child. Somebody may abuse or neglect a child by inflicting harm or failing to act to prevent harm. Children may be abused in a family or in an institutional or community setting by those known to them or more rarely by others. Abuse can take place wholly online, or technology may be used to facilitate offline abuse. Children may be abused by an adult or adults, or another child or children. But how common is it? Sadly, it's far more prevalent than you might think, especially when you consider that the majority of child abuse cases remain hidden, and therefore never enter the criminal justice system. Only 1 in 25 identifiable child abuse offences, that's 4%, in the year ending March 2019 resulted in a charge or summons after being recorded by the police. An average of 62 children a day are referred to agencies to investigate for abuse or neglect, with the NSPCC referring 22,500 abused and or neglected children to helpline agencies in 2021-22. If you're the parent of a school kid, this might shock you as much as it did me. The NSPCC estimates that in a typical school classroom, which is, what, about 30 kids, seven of them will experience abuse before they turn 18. They also estimated that one in five adults aged 18 to 74 experienced at least one form of child abuse before the age of 16. It's around 8.5 million people. If you or someone you know has experienced abuse, please know that help is available. I've listed some charities in this episode's description that you may want to reach out to. As we shift now to the actual story, I'll start, as I always do, by introducing the person in this episode's title. That is, the person whose life was so cruelly ended at the hands of someone else. Teddy Tilston was just two years old when his life was taken away by someone he was supposed to trust and feel safe in the company of. Teddy was welcomed to the world at the same time as his twin sister, Cassidy, but they were the second and third children to their parents, Mark Tilston and Ashley Willett, as they had a sister, Darcy, who was a year older than them. Another family member is Terry Ann Tilston, who I assume is Mark's sister, and she was close to all the kids. She plays a significant role a little later in this story, in a positive way. Described as being a little angel, Teddy was undoubtedly the apple of his dad's eye, as I imagine a lot of firstborn sons are to the fathers, but Mark obviously loved each of his children more than anything. Precisely when it happened and for what reason, I can't say, but Mark and Willett would soon separate after the birth of the twins. It saw all three of the children being placed in the care of a third party, the man whom Willett began a romantic relationship with after she and Mark split up, and watching the kids was something he often did. His name is Craig Smith, and he'd been watching Mark and Willett's kids on the regular since about October 2016, when he lost his job. He'd previously worked as a labourer and bar manager. 
Smith's relationship with Willett must have gotten serious rather quickly as he was living with her and the three kids at the former family home at Woodville Road, Birkenhead. Here's where I'd typically insert some macabre background information about Smith that would lead you to think something along the lines of, well how on earth did nobody see this coming, but in this story I'm unable to do so. Smith, by all accounts, was just a run-of-the-mill guy who was helping out his missus by watching her three kids when she went to work. The kids were treated as if they were his own, if Smith was to be believed, and nobody, not even members of Willett's family, suspected him of having even a morsel of a dark streak running through him. It's possible that Smith had a side to his personality that he preferred to keep under wraps and that he blinded Willett with his kindness to sort of throw her off the track. Willett said of Smith, I couldn't fault him. He was everything I'd expect him to be. 28-year-old Smith wasn't known to the police. He'd never been violent, that anyone knew or admitted at least, and even got on well with Willett's brother, Jackson. Jackson would later be asked in court what his relationship with Smith was like and how the pair got on. He replied by saying, Great, yeah, it was good. He was a nice guy. Smith has never done anything to ever give me reason to be concerned about him. He's been great with the kids. My sister has never had to ask me for help because of Smith, and I can honestly say I like him. He's a nice person and good to the children and my sister. If he has done something to the children, I would be amazed. It'd take some very convincing evidence to make me think that. Unbeknownst to those closest to him, Smith had a secret vicious temper that he did miraculously well to keep under wraps, beneath the guise of being a nice guy. Although much of his childhood and early years are lacking in readily available information, Smith would go on to confess some home truths to mental health nurses after he was arrested. He admitted to having a violent temper which could be set off at any moment. He had a hair trigger, as it were, and the results were often catastrophic. The admissions he made would later be used in his appeal case with his legal team explaining he was mentally unwell at the time of the admission, but it may have just been a case of the mask briefly slipping. Mentally unwell is the term they used. Smith also confessed to having stabbed his mum in the face when he was a youngster and also snatched cats roaming the neighbourhood and tied them up. When it comes to Willett, she was seen by those who knew her as nothing short of the perfect mum. Her best mate Emma Byrne said the following when describing Willett. I could not fault her. She was an amazing mum. She would do loads of stuff with them. If it was raining, it would be making crafts with them. Big cardboard houses, dancing. She'd always make sure they were having the best time. Like Jackson, Emma had no concerns regarding Smith. She said, he was fine. That is the frustrating part because I trusted him with my kids. If I would have seen anything, I would have pulled Ashley to one side and said, come on, because I know she would not have taken offence. I know what kind of person she is. She would have let me say anything to her. It just goes to show how well Smith was keeping his dark side and the child abuse he was inflicting on the twins hidden. A common thing I read during my research was that both Smith and Willett were frequent cannabis smokers. Now I have received a fair bit of flack in the past whenever I mention weed, especially when it relates to being a potential motive for a crime, but please note, I'm only mentioning this as the drug was a common thing for the couple to argue over. I'm not interested in debating the positive effects or the negative effects of weed, just know that Smith and Willett spent anywhere from 50 to over 100 quid on the stuff every week. 
Text messages between the two would later reveal arguments which indicated the pair's relationship was perhaps far rockier than those looking from the outside in perceived it to be. One such interaction revealed how Smith had headbutted a fridge after an argument left him so wound up that inflicting harm on the nearest inanimate object was the only way to release the tension. That headbutting incident occurred in the week leading up to our main timeline, which perhaps gives an indication as to how wound up Smith was at that point in his life. The story will continue after these quick messages. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. And now, back to the story. March 1st, 2017. That's the day on which this week's tragedy occurred. Willett had gone to work and left the three children in the care of Smith. Nothing out of the ordinary there. She did that all the time. Why would she have cause to worry? Regardless of how uneventful the previous childcare situations had been, for reasons known only to Smith, his volatile mood swings were particularly prevalent on that day. As she tended to her clients, Willett received a phone call from Smith which led to her urgently rushing home. Cassidy had hurt herself in a bizarre accident involving a dining room table. Smith informed Willett that the youngster had run straight into the table and banged her head, rendering her unconscious and in dire need of urgent medical attention. His version of events was that he'd been tending to the other two kids and suddenly found Cassidy on the floor. Picking her up, Smith said she regained consciousness and threw up, indicating a possible concussion. The first red flag there is that Smith didn't feel the need to phone for the emergency services. It was Willett who had to leave her job early, head home and was then responsible for taking Cassidy to the A&E department at Arrow Park Hospital, located three miles west of their home. It might be that Willett was the only one of the two who could drive or she may have had the car that day. What I'm getting at though is that Smith felt comfortable enough that he didn't have to dial 999. Whether that was because he didn't deem Cassidy's injury sufficient enough to warrant the call is known only to him, but the likelihood is that he didn't want to raise suspicion. If Willett took Cassidy to hospital, it might have been treated with less of a raised eyebrow than if her mum's partner took her in. Whatever the reason, Cassidy was soon looked at by medical staff at the hospital, and they noticed something which concerned them greatly. An x-ray revealed the two-year-old had a fractured wrist which didn't appear to have occurred during the dining room table incident. They estimated the fracture to have occurred up to six months earlier. Several bruises were also spotted on Cassidy's body which Willett denied knowing anything about, something the hospital staff said was simply inconceivable if she was an innocent party. Cassidy was kept in after the discovery of her concerning injuries and it was whilst she was being cared for that Willett received some more news. This time, it was truly devastating. Teddy had been brought to Arrow Park Hospital where he was quickly pronounced dead. In the space of just a few hours, Willett's twin children had suffered major injuries whilst in the care of Smith, leaving the devastated mother to ask him when they bumped into each other in a hospital corridor, What have you done? 
Taking the story back a bit to earlier that afternoon, it was at roughly 2pm that a dog walker called Alison Lamb recalled hearing something she described as the frightened scream of a child as she walked past Smith and Willett's home. She didn't know it at the time, but the scream belonged to Teddy Tilston. Just 25 minutes later, Smith was on the phone to the emergency services. He claimed to have been giving Teddy a bath when Darcy, the twins' older sister, called for him. She were downstairs whilst Teddy was supposedly in the bath upstairs. The reason for the middle of the day bath was supposedly because Teddy had had a toilet related accident that required him to be washed. Smith said he was gone for no longer than 30 seconds and when he got back to the bathroom he said Teddy appeared to be choking on some food. I got a bit lost with the story here because Smith said in another source that he'd given the children food which then led to Teddy choking which then led to him having his accident. The bath incident then followed that. As you can probably tell none of Smith's stories seem to add up. The main reason for that was because they were lies. The 999 operator was informed that Teddy was not breathing and was suspected of having swallowed a large quantity of bath water. Paramedics arrived at the scene shortly after the call, but to their astonishment, Teddy was bone dry. Sure, Smith could have easily dried him off before they arrived, but it didn't appear as if he'd had a bath at all. When asked if he'd attempted resuscitation, Smith informed the paramedics that upon discovering Teddy, he removed him from the bath and laid his body on a towel on the landing before heading back to the bathroom to empty the bath. I can't speak for anyone else, but I don't think letting the water out of the bath would be my biggest priority in that situation. Smith then attempted to wake Teddy by having him stand, but failed miserably. That attempt led to Teddy falling backwards and hitting his head, so said Smith, in what was likely another make-believe story intended to cover his abusive tracks. If the scream heard at 2pm is an accurate piece of witness testimony, it means Teddy was killed around that time, but Smith waited almost half an hour to call the emergency services. The reason for that was due to him panicking and doing everything he could to save Teddy's life. More like save his own skin. Teddy was showing no signs of life as the paramedics did their best to save him. After eventually arriving at the hospital, one nurse recalled an awkward exchange in which she had to force Teddy out of Smith's arms so the medical staff could work on trying to save him. Leanne Monaghan, a senior sister at Arrow Park Hospital's A&E department, said Smith placed a hand on Teddy's chest and pushed down as she attempted to lift his body up off a trolley. He was described as being quite heavy-handed with young Teddy's delicate head and body. A short while later, Teddy was pronounced dead and Willett was informed. I'm about to go through some of Teddy's injuries now, so I'm going to give another extreme content warning. Teddy Tilston did not die as a result of drowning in a bath or anywhere else. He had 42 visible injuries across his body, including to his head, ear, upper lip, neck, jaw, abdomen and back. A pathologist confirmed his cause of death has been due to an internal tear to tissues joining the wall of his abdomen, meaning he had been struck with such force that the only logical explanation was that he was either punched or kicked. Teddy also had a bleed on the brain, something not thought to have happened on March 1st. That injury was estimated as having occurred in the weeks leading up to his death. It was that brain injury, caused by a lack of oxygen, which suggested he had survived at least 30 minutes after being injured that afternoon. 
Before I talk about the inevitable arrests of Smith and Willett, I just want to talk a bit about how much Teddy's death affected Mark and Terry Ann. The brother and sister were devastated when they heard the news and released a touching poem about their little star, Teddy. It reads, You're one of heaven's angels now, a perfect little star, and when you shine, the world can see how beautiful you are. Terry-Ann launched a GoFundMe campaign in an attempt to raise funds for Teddy's funeral in the hope of giving him a stellar send-off. He deserved nothing less. The target amount of 500 quid was smashed, with the total amount raised being £1,220. Any excess funds were to be used to support Teddy's sisters, as well as to ensure a donation was made to Alder Hay Children's Hospital as a thank you for the care Teddy received. I'm not sure if that relates to some of Teddy's previous unexplained injuries that Smith and Willett denied having ever noticed, but it may well be. The hospital staff initially questioned Willett regarding Cassidy's concerning injuries before she were formally taken into custody and charged with causing and or allowing a child to suffer serious physical harm. She was adamant that she had not noticed any previous injuries and couldn't fathom the prospect of Smith hurting her children. Smith, on the other hand, was arrested and charged with murder. He had a high amount of cannabis in his blood within six hours of his arrest, but as I said earlier, I won't be passing comment on that aspect of this case, as my knowledge is limited as to the drug's effects. Whilst confessing the stuff about stabbing his mum as a kid when he spoke to mental health nurses, Smith also reportedly said he wished he was dead so that he couldn't hurt anyone else. A rare moment of admission there, but it wouldn't last. He blamed demons in his head for what he'd done at that point, but then he went on to deny everything. As with so many cases, Smith knew he'd murdered Teddy, yet still subjected the rest of his family to a trial in which the details of his death and his injuries would be discussed in great detail. If he'd have pleaded guilty, he'd have saved them all from that torment. Two separate charges of child cruelty were also being faced by Smith, with Willett facing two similar charges regarding Teddy and Cassidy. The trial lasted roughly four weeks after commencing in early October 2017 at Liverpool Crown Court. Mr Justice Garnham oversaw the proceedings and had to decide whether or not to accept evidence relating to Darcy, because after her and Cassidy had been taken into care, she'd been taken to see a dentist who advised she needed to have all her teeth removed. Her teeth were so badly decayed that the dentists were left with no alternative, but the defence argued the evidence was irrelevant to the case as no charges had been brought forward relating to Darcy. Ultimately, Mr Justice Garnham agreed. The evidence was ruled inadmissible and was not allowed to be used in the trial for fear of unfairly prejudicing the jury of eight women and four men. It took the jury just over 19 hours of deliberation before they reached a guilty verdict, with Mr Justice Garnham handing Smith a mandatory life sentence in early November 2017 with a minimum term of 17 years. He was also found guilty of causing actual bodily harm to Cassidy and of the two child cruelty charges. The judge said, I cannot say whether you punched him or kicked him or used your knee on him, but I'm quite certain that you struck him in the gut with such force to cause that internal bleeding. I cannot speculate what might have caused that loss of temper, but something, probably something trivial, happened in that house that lunchtime that caused you to fly into a rage and strike Teddy Tilston. 
Willett was sentenced a month later and received a 12-month prison sentence suspended for two years after being found guilty of two counts of failing to seek medical assistance. Each count received a six-month sentence and ran consecutively. She was also required to attend and complete a rehabilitation activity with the probation service. Willett said post-sentencing, I'd just like to say thank you to all the paramedics who helped. I know they did the best they could and I really, really appreciate it. There was a plethora of public outcry regarding Smith's sentence as people felt his minimum term was far too short given the cruel nature of the crime and Teddy's young age. The then Attorney General, Jeremy Wright QC, was equally appalled and referred the case to the Court of Appeal under the unduly lenient sentence scheme. That scheme allows people from the general public, it doesn't have to be someone involved in the case, to request the Attorney General to review a sentence for crimes such as murder, rape and robbery. The request must be submitted within 28 days of the sentencing, the sooner the better. Jeremy Wright's case was put forward and heard on January 18th, 2018, but the then Lord Chief Justice, Sir Ian Burnett, denied the request. He claimed Smith's sentence was not unduly lenient and there was, therefore, no need for it to be increased. As I briefly touched upon earlier, Smith attempted to appeal his conviction at the Court of Appeal in May of that same year, however, that was also rejected. You'll recall the argument from Smith's legal team regarded the evidence supposedly given to the mental health nurses whilst in a mentally unwell state. Sir Brian Leveson, one of the three Court of Appeal judges who threw out Smith's appeal, said, It was entirely open to the judge to reach the decision that he did. The judge explained the mental state of the applicant at the time he made the remarks to the nurse. He knew a police officer was in the room and must have known that he was unburdening himself of important facts. This application for permission to appeal is refused. At around the same time, a serious case review in Teddy's death was released, although I can't for the life of me find it, so perhaps it wasn't made public. I'm not sure what the ins and outs are with such reports. Teddy, who was referred to as Child I in the report, along with another child from a different case, Child J, was found to have 65 total injuries, 23 more than the 42 visible ones I mentioned earlier. Amazingly, the report found there were no opportunities missed by public services and it was not possible that professionals could reasonably have foreseen or prevented the abuse suffered by Teddy. Dr Maggie Atkinson, chair of the Wirral's Safeguarding Children Board, which carried out the serious case review, said, This is a deeply tragic situation and on behalf of the members of WSCB, I offer my sincerest sympathies to the family of these children to those who loved and care about them. This was a family that was deemed to be doing well, with clean, happy and engaging children. There was no history of abuse or neglect in the family, and there were no indications of vulnerabilities that would have set them apart from any other families in the community. The review of this case found that the children and the family were not known to local services, and that based on the information available at the time, there was no evidence that chances to intervene were missed. And that was the story of the murder of Teddy Tilston. Thanks again, Mark Lewis, for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. This week's four new reviews are as follows. Steph MC Muck left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, Never listened to a podcast before and came across yours and binge-listened. Each episode is very well-researched and done in a way which is very respectful. Really good podcast. 
could you do a review on David Anthony McGreevy? Keep up the great work. I've actually covered McGreevy in a Patreon bonus episode, Steph. It was my third one. Tox Pops Kbe? Don't, don't, I don't know how you say that. Left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts UK. It reads, I really love how Stu covers lesser-known cases and does it in such a way so that you can listen and enjoy, but also does not take away from the severity of the crime. Thanks, Stu, and keep it up. Ryan Davis left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, Love the format of the podcasts. The local random facts at the start of each episode are a great touch. The background struck early life of each of the criminals provides an important background. The no-nonsense, straight-to-the-point factual coverage on the events makes the shows easy to follow. I love the mostly non-biased coverage descriptions with little of your own opinions, allowing listeners to form their own opinions based on facts. The explanations of terms listeners may not be familiar with are a great touch. I recommended the show from my partner's parents who listen to them in bed. I listen to the episodes on long journeys, which make the journeys go much faster. Finally, Sherry Lynn Gleeson recommended British Murders on Facebook by saying, British Murders came up in my Spotify recommendations a few days ago. Every so often, the algorithm gets somewhat right. This time, it got it very right. I absolutely love the show, and Baby Blues' voice is just too adorable eagerly binging in New England. Thank you, Steph, Tox, Pops, B... Don't know how to say that. Ryan and Sherry Lynn for leaving those reviews. If you want to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser, or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that at Patreon.com slash BritishMurders, or you can donate on a one-off basis via BuyMeACoffee.com slash BritishMurders. Thank you, Stephanie Pittman, for buying me a beer. The message left was, love your show, Stu. My auntie nicknamed me Stu Poo, so I love hearing when people call you Stu. Thank you, hello, and welcome to my newest Patreon members, Trevor Wakenshaw and Ali. Please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You're not going to get the episode covered, but you'll get a cheeky shout-out too. And that does us for another episode. And breathe. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.